Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about practice. Tennessee football spring practice is more than a week underway as we progress toward the April 15th spring game. Welcome back to the Volunteer State. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside Adam Sparks and John Adams of the Knoxville News Sentinel. Of course, the last couple weeks we were talking hoops on this podcast, but, uh, well, Tennessee did its annual vanishing act from the NCAA tournament, both on the men's and women's side, both teams bowing out in the Sweet 16. So it's back to all football all the time. Here on the podcast, we got Adam back with us this week, and he's been monitoring the happenings out at spring practice. Adam, what's your initial observations of Nico Iamaleava? I know we have much to discuss, but I don't want to bury the lead. When you got the number one ranked recruit in spring practice, we have to start there. What jumps out? We've seen a reasonable amount of practice uh, for the first week. It- Here's what I'll say. It's when you see the comparison of Joe Milton running the offense, a guy that's been in the offense for two years now, versus Nico running the offense, having arrived in late December, going through his real only first practices now. You have to see that in person to fully appreciate the tempo that Tennessee runs. We all know Tennessee has the fastest uh, offense in terms of tempo in college football. But you really see a contrast when it's those two quarterbacks running it. You know, the best analogy I can give is when you watch Joe Milton running the offense at practice, it's at 90 miles an hour. When you see Nico then come directly after him, because there's no other scholarship quarterbacks, uh, it runs at about 50 miles an hour. And even more so, you know, Joe Milton has his foot on the gas and it's 90 miles an hour the whole time. He's, you know, he's he's on the interstate and he's not slowing down. Uh, Nico is, you know, pumping the brakes every once in a while. He's pulling over the shoulder to make sure he's going the right direction. And you really see that contrast when there's only two quarterbacks in, uh, in camp. Uh, I say all that to say, if you, if a fan had come out and watched an hour or two of practice, they would say, wow, Joe Milton is so far ahead of Nico. It's ridiculous. It's just, you know, two completely different situations. Um, but that will change over the next three weeks of, of spring practice. Uh, Nico, I suspect, will go this second week, will go from 50 miles an hour to 55 and then maybe 60. And maybe by the time people see him in the spring game, it'll be 70 miles an hour and they'll be a little bit more comparable. Uh, but it's it's just so difficult to sort of get into the flow of this offense and just do it immediately. Uh, Joe Milton dealt with this it, his first year when he came. Um, where Hinted Hooker had had all the spring practice to get used to the offense and the pace of it. And they thought Joe Milton's raw ability would make up for that, would compensate for that. And it didn't. Uh, he, he could not keep up with the pace that Tennessee needed to run it at. And that's what Nico is dealing with now, but like times 10, because he's coming from high school. Uh, so he, I saw five-star ability in the first week. I saw a whole lot of potential. 
but I also saw a guy that, you know, needed to slow it down a lot of times and some coaches that had a lot of empathy for that because they knew that would happen, that he would not look like a five-star quarterback on a number of plays because he, because the pace is just so ridiculous. I would think the coaches would just want to keep that speed at all times. I, if I were advising a coach advising Nico, I would say, don't worry about the mistakes now. Just keep, keep pressing on that accelerator. And eventually it'll get easier and easier rather than just kind of try and gradually not make mistakes and go slower. Since they're all about speed, I would think that's the way they would approach it. And, and, and I will say that uh, Nico has been frustrated, but not discouraged. And I think that's pretty different. Um, I think there's a positive in that. He, he, he has said that he's watched film and, and seen how he has made mistakes because of the pace that he should have seen this quicker. And he saw it a little slower, but next time he will see it quicker. He'll recognize it. Um, that That's understandable frustration after the fact. He's not been discouraged, though. I think it you can be a freshman that come in, be overwhelmed by it, and think, maybe I'm not a five-star. Maybe I'm not meant for this. Uh, this is nowhere near as easy as it was in high school. He doesn't feel discouraged in that way. He just feels frustrated that he's not um, up to that pace yet. But it, it's gotten a little better each day, That that's for sure. I wrote a column last week after Josh Heupel's opening press conference of, of spring practice because we knew there'd be questions about Nico and and pretty quickly there were. But, you know, the way I see this, and I'm curious if you guys agree, I think any quarterback controversy here that we hear about in the next handful of months is, is probably manufactured drama. Uh, I think at this point it would be really something of a surprise if uh, – if Joe Milton is is not the starting quarterback come September, and then if he falters, Nico will will have to take the reins. And and I think that the bigger challenge for Tennessee, rather than determining a starting quarterback, I think it has its starter in Joe Milton. The last time we saw him in the Orange Bowl, played very well. I think he's going to get the first shot uh, at this job this year. I, th- I think the bigger challenge is, as you mentioned, Adam, there's just two scholarship quarterbacks. In spring practice. Now, maybe Tennessee adds someone in May or June, but I think the pickings of transfers in this second go around are it's going to be kind of slim. There's going to be a reason why those guys are in the portal. Usually that reason is going to be they didn't like where they were at on their depth chart at their last place. So I, I think that the real key here is not you know determining who your starter is. I think Joe Milton is the starter, even though Josh Heupel's not going to say that. Uh, in late March. I think Milton is the starter, and the task is, because you only have two scholarship QBs, you've got to get Nico ready to contribute, because we've seen, you know, in, in recent seasons, how quickly you can need that that backup quarterback. Yeah, I liked Nico's answer sort of along those lines when we got him for his first presser a few days ago. He said his job, his expectation is that he needs to be ready um to help Joe Milton in the same way that Joe helped Hendon last year. And he said, and the way he phrased it was anything can happen during a season. And so the, the, the inference there is Hendon hooker got injured and Joe Milton had to be the starter. And so Joe Milton is the presumed starter now, but anything can happen. There can be injuries. There can be a lot of different things. And Nico needs to be ready to, to play. Um, I mean, yeah, I think, I think you're right that they're probably not going to get a great, 
quarterback that to, that when they add in the portal after spring practice. So so Nico needs to be ready to be the number two. And they've got games early in the season, um, non-conference games especially, uh, where Nico's gonna gonna play. I mean, there's a couple non-conference games where he can play as, close to a half if, if those are blowouts. So he'll get his chance. And, and I do think the schedule sets up to where uh, Joe Milton will get his shot three, four, five games, and if it goes well, he'll he'll keep the job. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think we can't overstate what that Orange Bowl did for the belief in Joe Milton um, because, you know, Clemson, they were down a couple of key guys, but Tennessee was down a couple, three key guys, and that was a top-10 team. Clemson wasn't a really good defense, and, uh, you know, J- Joe Milton was the MVP of that game, but he wasn't phenomenal. He was pretty good, but uh, Josh Hoppel called some called some route combinations and some plays that there were opportunities to make. And Joe Milton made you know three or four great throws when those were presented to him. And so I think that told Josh Hoppel, if I scheme this, Joe Milton can hit these. And the the receivers that you need to run that offense that we saw in the Orange Bowl are coming back. I think there's enough of the offensive line, the running backs are back. So the pieces are there to be a pretty good offense. And Joe Milton ran it the last time that we saw it. So I think there's a pretty good belief that Joe Milton could continue to do that. Nico just has to be yeah, up to speed enough that when his time comes, he's the number two and, and certainly not a developmental number three. Blake, I think you would have to be wildly optimistic to believe you could go down – Fine, come up with a competent number three quarterback. I, I just don't think it's it's reasonable in today's college football. If both quarterbacks would get hurt, you're just in big trouble, and the season won't go as you had hoped. I mean, that's just the real the reality of it now with transfers. I mean, look at how many teams. Well, a good example: how many teams don't even have an adequate second team quarterback when Will Levis of Kentucky went out last year. Oh my gosh, Kentucky's offense pretty much fell off the map. So, yeah, you got to just try and keep those keep those guys healthy, I think is the key. Otherwise, uh it could be a bad season. It will be interesting to see like what the options are for that third scholarship quarterback quarterback cuz you think of the scenarios that a guy would go into the portal and they would see Tennessee as his destination. I mean, it, it you know, a mid-major backup who would rather be, you know, a reserve on a, on an SEC team, maybe. Um, could you have a guy that's, you know, a sixth year senior COVID senior who wants to be a coach? I think that's a possibility. Hey, I'd love to go spend a year in Josh Hopple's offense because I'm going to be a GA a year from now. Uh, you're going to have to kind of get lucky with one of those guys because, you know, I was even thinking of some guys that I've seen or covered in the past that would be the level of a player that they would need to bring in. It would be, you know, a, a solid mid-major uh, quarterback. Well, that's that's kind of what they already have is their two walk-ons. So I don't know that that gets you any better aside from just more numbers. So it's probably going to be slim pickings. They're going to be fortunate if they can get a guy that can at least play to some extent at this level. Yeah, I think that is going to make it particularly tough for Tennessee. To John's point, I think anytime you're pursuing, say, a third-string quarterback, um, that, that can be kind of tough in the portal. I think there are other destinations, though, that may be more appealing for quarterbacks than Tennessee in this second go-around of transfers. I think about Auburn, you know, where they bring back 
TJ Finley, Robbie Ashford, both of who had their struggles last year as starters, new coach. Hugh Freeze has has made it clear this spring that his quarterbacks have a long way to go. I mean, to me, Auburn is putting the message out there that whenever the transfer portal reopens in mid-April, they want to be first in line to go shopping and, and see just what exactly there is in there. And I would think if you are a transfer quarterback, you would look at Auburn as a situation like, hey, I could go in there and beat TJ Finley and Robbie Ashford and win the starting job with a with a new coach. I think for Tennessee, they bring a third-year quarterback back and Joe Milton, who is the Orange Bowl MVP, they got a five-star, you know, as a true freshman. I just think, yeah, sort of like what you were saying, Adam, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of room and a lot to pitch there to guys in the portal when they see, well, Joe Milton's probably going to be the starter and, and Nico's probably going to be the quarterback of the future. Yeah, I think maybe your best case scenario is that there's a school that's got like a crowded quarterback competition like Tennessee had a couple of years ago. And one of those guys that thinks he got a raw deal maybe is convinced he can take advantage of a new start somewhere else. Like, a, like remember Brian Maurer, that was his situation, right? I, I, I should be in the mix here and I'm not, so I'm going to go somewhere else. I think that's your best case scenario. But even if that happens, you then have to convince that quarterback that he has a chance to beat out Nico as the number two. And that's that's an easier sale if there's a four-star quarterback there, but not a five-star. And not a five-star with a huge NIL deal that that, that, that portal quarterback can go and Google and, and see about. <laughs> and so it's it, you know, it's it would be a tough sale. I'd love to be able to fly on the wall for these potential portal quarterbacks when they come and talk to Tennessee, how they present the competition of what they have in, in Milton and Nico, because they're they're probably going to be able – if they get a quarterback that they want, they're probably going to have to talk down both of those guys, and that's going to be difficult to do. Uh, well, Adam reminded me of something. Maybe Tennessee needs to reacquire Brian Maurer. Yeah. I don't know where he is, but he hung around a while. He seemed to like it here, even though he wasn't playing much. So he's a pretty mobile guy, so worth a call. Yeah, if, if that's the uh, caliber of, of quarterback you're going to get out of the portal, I might just uh, ride with uh, Gaston Moore and Navy Schuler and, and and be done with it and let one of the walk-ons win the win the job for the the third string quarterback. Uh, all right, let's let's leave the quarterbacks behind here. I think we got a pretty clear pecking order of how this looks. Joe Milton is is the guy until further notice, and he may be the guy throughout all season. And Nico is the heir apparent who's studying up. So. Pivoting into other directions, we talked a few weeks ago on this pod about potential high-impact transfers. And Adam, now that you've gotten a look at at those guys, who jumps out to you and makes you think, uh, yeah, these 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 handful of guys, these few players are going to be really impactful here at Tennessee, with the caveat that we know everybody looks good and in the spring, hope springs eternal, et cetera, et cetera. But who's, who's catching your eye among this transfer group? Yeah, I won't go through all of them because uh, we, we have a pod every week. But um, I, I have to always catch myself, especially in spring practice, because um, you can make observations. You don't want to jump beyond that to much bigger conclusions. So I can kind of give you a statement on different guys, but then that's always followed up with a question like, I'll give you three examples. Dante Thornton, the wide receiver from Oregon, he looks the part. He looks good route running. He looks like a really good slot receiver. I like his length. 
Uh, he he looks a little bit looks uh, looks like Javante Payton a couple of years ago, really productive starter for Tennessee. Only he's in the slot, so he's playing Jalen Hyatt's position. He looks like he could be a potentially a starting receiver, but he's playing behind Squirrel White at slot. And I could talk a while about what I've seen out of Squirrel the first week. Squirrel White um, may be their most productive receiver this year, just in terms of numbers. He looks really, really, really good. Um, so where, where does Jonte Thornton fit? Because they play three guys, and uh, Brew uh, McCoy is not going to give up his position. And Ramel Keaton looks great in, in spring practice. I don't think he's given up any anything anytime soon. So Dante Thornton looks good, but where is his place? Keenan Peely, the BYU transfer at linebacker, love his size. He's like 6'3", 240. Love his experience. He played a long time at BYU. He was a captain. Uh, he's like 25 years old. The guy, I believe the guy's married and 25 years old. He looks like a coach. I mean, legitimately looks like an assistant coach. Uh, Nico spends some time with him. I've seen kind of off the field and after practice. Uh, uh, both uh, uh, Polynesian background. Uh, that They seem to have somewhat of a friendship. But it looks like a dad and a son almost when you see those two guys together. But so, so I, I, I have a statement on him, on Keenan Peely, experienced, big, mature, smart. But does that translate into a very productive, athletic SEC linebacker? Can he run with these guys? Can he play at this level? Can he drop into pass coverage? I don't know that yet. And third, BYU transfer Gabe Judy Lolly, a cornerback, the position of, uh, of need uh, for Tennessee, just upping the the skill set and the talent that they have because they do have experience. Um, if you read the body language on Judy Lolly, when you look at the cornerbacks, he looks like the leader of the group. The way he interacts with young players, the way he he seems to be helping other players uh, with their with their fundamentals and with their technique and all that. It looks like he's the guy that's been like the three-year starter that's been at Tennessee his whole career. So that tells me already that he's being looked at as potentially a starter, certainly a guy in the rotation. Uh, But do intangibles make him a really good press man uh, coverage corner? I I don't know that. And that's especially with Peely and Judy Lolly. They have the intangibles. I like all those things. Sometimes that doesn't mean you're a really good player. And that's – what separates a statement of a first week in spring with the with the questions that follow. Adam, another transfer window is about to open. Uh, we talked about getting a third third quarterback, which seems improbable maybe, but can you – are there some other positions, do you think, where Tennessee might want to be looking into the portal and coming up, say, we still need help at this position, let's try and get a player – uh, in the portal edge rusher. Um, but I, I have my doubts that they can find one. They didn't find one in the first wave of the portal. I would doubt they would find another. I mean, you know, this is sort of like the, uh, you know, the NFL, um, you know, everybody wants a left tackle and a corner and a pass rusher. And because everybody wants them, there's very, you know, there's very few out there. There's not a supply of really good ones. And I think that's the problem with edge rusher. If you look at Tennessee's defensive line, Almost all their defensive tackles come back. A strong side defensive end comes back and Tyler Barron, and they have some depth over there too. They have depth and talent and production and all that on their defensive line. But then it drops off steeply when you get to edge rusher where Byron Young played. And so you can have uh, 
the other three positions are solidified and really good. And then a definite weak link at edge rusher. And, uh, you know, they've got options there, but they're, they're either, you know, Roman Harrison was a solid backup. He's not a difference maker, but the others are all young and unproven. Joshua Josephs, James Pierce, Caleb Herring is a true freshman. I don't think you can rely on a true freshman at that position. Um, so they would love, I think, to go out and get a proven edge rusher. Uh, but I just don't think that guy's going to be out there. Um, you know, Rodney Garner, a defensive line coach, told us a few days ago that, you know, there's not really an option. Like, they can't they can't go out there with, you know, a, a three-man front and just say we're fine. They've got to have an edge rusher. And uh, they've got a few options. Those, those guys have to work out. And it can't be one guy. It, like, replacing Byron Young can't be one guy. It's got to be two or three. And we'll see if they can – they can do that. In, in two years, Josh Heupel has obviously proven a lot and, and quieted, I would say, almost all the, the doubters, particularly with last season and the way he developed Hinden Hooker and the way his offense has, has translated well to the SEC. The one thing that strikes me, though, as, as these names come up in these conversations um, that, that we're having here, these are all Josh Heupel's guys. You know, throughout the past cooking with the ingredients he inherited from Jeremy Pruitt, and he sprinkled in some of his own guys, and he got certainly a lot more production out of the Pruitt holdovers. He introduced a, a much better scheme, and it worked great. But now, as you know, Adam, we, we, we talked through some of these, these transfers that you mentioned, and then guys like Squirrel White and even Joe Milton, you know, Milton's a veteran guy, but he's a hypo guy. So when hypo brought in, th this now really feels like, um, even though there's still some Pruitt guys left, this feels like it's through and through Hypel's team. How much of that storyline do you think will kind of define the season? Because that is one thing I'm wondering about is, you know, as good as it was the past couple of years, you know, and we are now transitioning to these are Josh Hypel's guys, his program. How does it look? with players he's brought in, recruited, brought in as transfers. How important do you think this is uh, of a season on that front for, for Josh Heupel to sort of uh, kind of prove himself in that area? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's critical uh, because the narrative can kind of go one of two ways. Um, Josh Heupel has proven, him and his staff have proven, they can take guys that were underutilized and make them much, much, much better. He's shown that. Uh, you just look in the in the, the guys that are going into the draft this year. Uh, Hendon Hooker was a journeyman that was brought in by Jeremy Pruitt from Virginia Tech, turned into a Heisman candidate. Uh, Jalen Hyatt was a guy who had not really produced much. It's a little bit as a freshman, but not really much. And he was when the Bolitnikoff. Cedric Tillman had not done much until Josh Hoppel got here. He's a thousand-yard receiver. Uh, Darnell Wright was seen sort of in the conversation of a bust at offensive tackle at least certainly a guy that had not lived up to, to his five-star rating, and he may be a first-round pick now. And so all those those guys that Josh Heupel inherited, he made into really, really good players. But those were Jeremy Pruitt's guys. I, I, I think that you know that narrative is wide open now because uh, one of those is the skill set to make players much better. That's not exactly the same skill set as recruiting guys and developing them. It's similar, but it's different. And, um, you know, if, if this team, you know, goes nine and three or whatever, and it's mostly hypo guys, then you can kind of put that conversation to rest. If they take a sizable step backward, 
as Jeremy Pruitt's players start to cycle out of the program, uh, then, you know, you, you could have some questions. Well, when Adam goes over those guys that developed, the Pruitt players who developed so terrifically under Heupel, that has to be really encouraging for Tennessee fans because if he can take Jeremy Pruitt's players and turn them into really good players when they weren't that productive under Pruitt, imagine what he can do with his own guys. And he's recruiting well enough. I think recruiting's going pretty well under him. So I think that's a really good sign. I, I And I don't have many doubts about his ability to make guys better, particularly on offense. So I, I think – I think Tennessee will be fine there. Well, we know you don't have many doubts, John. You're on record as saying ten and two should be the should be the standard for this season, right? Go out there and win ten games again and get back to a New Year's six, correct? Maybe losses that, to Georgia and Alabama. That's that's what elite programs do, Blake. They do it year, year after year. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh one other thing I was wondering, we we, we hit on the transfers, but you know, as I said, everybody looks good in the spring, or if you don't look good in the spring, you ought to be eyeing that transfer portal. Um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, spring, spring time is, is, is a time everybody kind of gets, um, lots of praise and, and you think these guys are going to be a thousand yard receiver. And then sometimes the, the year rolls around and they catch four passes, uh, against East Tennessee state. You don't see them in the other 11 games, uh, but be that as it may, Adam, beyond the transfers, is there anyone that has just really caught your attention out there and and almost making you pump the brakes a little bit and think, whoa, now, wait a second. Let's not overreact to this guy, but he looks awfully good. Yeah, a pet peeve of mine, as I think a lot of sports writers, which you're alluding to, is that uh, fans and sometimes reporters get tend to get overly excited about this, the spring practice stars. Uh, yeah, the, the the running back that rushes for 100 yards in the spring game and you never hear from him again. Um, I, I try my best to stay away from that because it is a pet peeve of mine. Um, I, sometimes I can't help it, though. And uh, one of those cases in the first week, for whatever that matters, uh, was with Arian Carter, uh, linebacker from Smyrna. It's a four-star guy. If people remember his, uh, his story, he was um, – he played running back primarily because of an injury. If I remember right, his junior year went to went back to linebacker his senior year. So he was sort of a late bloomer, at least in terms of position. And then everybody jumped on him. At the front of the line was was Nick Saban in Alabama. Um, Alabama went after him aggressively, and Tennessee was able to to hold on to him and kept him. And uh, you know, I mean, in person he he passes the eye test in terms of. Uh, he doesn't look like he's 18. He looks like he's 22. He developed young guy. Uh, does not look like a freshman. Uh, looks like a fully formed SEC linebacker. And then uh, on the field, uh, I mean, he, I wrote about it last week. He rotated in with some of the ones and twos at linebacker, the starters and the backups. And uh, soon after he was out there, he dropped into coverage, uh, read Joe Milton's eyes and picked off a pass over the middle. Uh, made a great catch on it, two hands, started to run it back. And uh, you don't want to base anything off of one play. But his athleticism and the dropping into coverage is very important with these linebackers. They have to help out this pass defense that struggled. Um, his athleticism and that, uh, everything you've heard about him is that he's very instinctive. You saw that in that play and a few others. 
the fact that the coaches were putting him out there with the ones and twos that communicates to me they just want to give it a test drive let's just let's just see how he reacts to things out here and the fact that he looks the part and that Alabama wanted him really really bad uh I'm, I'm not putting the I'm not putting out the Arian Carter's going to play a whole lot this year uh, at linebacker, but it wouldn't shock me uh, based on what I've, I've seen so far. Um, I'm as excited to see Arian Carter as a freshman play as I am Nico. Um, I, I think he's that good. I think he could be good er- earlier than later. Boy, that's going to fire up some fans. Blake, do you notice how uh, <laughs> you notice how the team is aging under Adams analysis? I mean, he's got a, the BYU transfer linebacker looks like an assistant coach. Arian Carter is 18 going on 23. Uh, it's going to be a pretty old team by the time they kick it off. <laughs> yeah, that can uh, that can work to your advantage at times. Uh, on, the I mean, flip it, side, uh, on the flip side, though, a year ago, Squirrel White looked like he was 15. And, uh, <laughs> and he turned out to be a pretty good player. So <laughs> sometimes maturity... John, even as as we've uh, kind of talked about other other areas of this roster, I've been struck by how many times Nico's name kind of continues to come up. Uh, um, you've got good perspective on this. You were around to cover you know, the entirety of the Peyton Manning era. How would you compare the hoopla and anticipation, hype, whatever you want to call it, for Nico in advance of his freshman season as compared to to Peyton Manning, because like, you know, the recruiting services weren't back then what they are now, obviously, but everybody knew Peyton Manning was one of, if not the top quarterback recruit in the country, you know, even, even before the days of, of rivals and 24 seven and on three, we all knew that. Right. Um, but now we have number one recruit in the nation, Nico Yamal Liava, easy for me to say, uh, how does the the hype of one compare to the other, would you say? Well, everything is hyped more now, so you have to consider that. Um, Nico is, uh, with social media, with NIL, and all, and all the speculation about just how many millions of dollars Nico's um, getting, I think it would be amazing. Well, we, we just saw how much what Arch Manning is going through at Texas but imagine if Peyton Manning were a freshman here now at, uh, at Tennessee, what it would be like. I, I th- but even back then, uh, what was interesting about that situation was Tennessee had another quarterback in the same class that was much heralded named Brandon Stewart. And so it wasn't as though I, I th- it wasn't. Yeah, everybody knew the Manning name with Archie and and the family and all that kind of great stuff. But Brandon Stewart was considered a potential star, so you had two of those guys. So they were kind of lumped together a lot of times. But I always, I've told this a lot of times, but I I still remember pretty well when Peyton in his first scrimmage. Remember, he didn't come in here in the spring preseason scrimmage. Uh, he completed all but one pass, and he looked as though he just looked totally in control of the offense. And so I, I just think I think everybody really thought that right then that Peyton Manning was going to be a great player, but they thought Brandon Stewart might be a great player too, 
And they didn't think either one of them could beat out Jerry Colquitt. The only way it evolved the way it did was because Jerry Colquitt, unfortunately, who I think would have been a really good quarterback, was injured on the seventh play of the season opener at UCLA. So it was just a, a different situation. But see, one of the things that's more striking is, and Adam mentioned it again today, we talk about, yeah, Joe Milton is looks like he will be the starter, but nobody's sure that he will be the starter wire to wire, that Nico could possibly win the job before it's all said and done and when he is better acclimated to the offense. But with Jerry Colquitt returning as a backup, proven backup quarterback and experience, I don't think anybody thought Peyton Manning would be the starting quarterback as a true freshman. It worked well, out it, that way. Well, and of course, Todd Helton was in that mix too. And yeah, once he lost the job, we never heard from him again. I don't know whatever happened to that guy. <laughs> I think he tried another sport. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that, that's funny that you said you watched Peyton in practice and all these things, which is what I'm communicating right now, you know, on, on this pod about seeing Nico in practice compared to Joe. Uh, 14 year old me back in the day when Brandon Stewart and Peyton Manning were coming in, I remember seeing the two of those guys from a few hundred, a couple hundred miles away on TV and saying, I think Stewart's the better of the two. I was a Brandon Stewart, uh, a, a guy early on. Cause I just thought he, <laughs> from my vantage point, he looked like the better quarterback. I didn't see them in practice. Like a, like a, uh, like a sports writer would at the time. So th- there is different perspectives when you see them close up or when you see them far away and, um, and sort of know where all the pieces are. Um, you know, I, I don't know what kind of, uh, uh, feedback you guys have gotten from fans now, but in a small sample size from, from fans that I've talked to, I've gotten a little bit of the pump the brakes on Nico now that he signed and he's here and you know, he's a volunteer. Um, when Nico had committed and then he had signed, he was the absolute best recruit they've ever, ever gotten. May even be better than Peyton, that sort of talk. Now that he's here and you know, he's here. Uh, anytime I've written in a story the past uh, couple months that, you know, Nico Yamaliava is arguably the, top recruit in the last 20 years or the top quarterback recruit for Tennessee in the past 20 years. Um, I quickly get a list of everybody that's better than him from, Mm. from readers. Uh, Trey Smith, uh, Trey Smith was better. Uh, Ross Brown was better. Eric Berry was better. Uh, You know, just, just Casey Clawson was better. And so you sort of see this thing like uh, coaches tend to, you know, they recruit a guy and then once they get him on campus, they unrecruit them. I sense a little bit of that with the Tennessee fan base. If we have him now, now let's pump the brakes a little bit, uh, a little bit on him. If you look at the the grades of whatever that matters in recruiting services, he's he's top three or four um, best recruits Tennessee has had in the uh, in the era where recruits have been uh, graded, which is essentially the two thousands. That, that says a lot. He's he's the highest rated quarterback they've had in that span, which was right after the Peyton years. All right, well, spring practice still has a a few weeks to go. Adam will have all the coverage over at knoxnews.com. He'll be out at practice uh, pretty much every time there is an open practice. Uh, He's doing the the Lord's work. John and I will continue with the commentary, and we, of course, will be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Volunteer State.
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.